winter. Hello and welcome to the 25th of these podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gometra. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervik in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk with Hugh McPhail. Born in the Isle of Seal outside of Oban, Hugh and family moved to the Isle of Ulva when he was a small boy. Hugh talks about his life on the island of Ulva, the construction of the big house, the farming, fishing and other people who lived on the island at the time. At one point he has a fantastic series of reminiscences about the puffers, the small coastal ships that brought supplies such as coal from the mainland to the islands. He identifies the route they would take as they went about their business, which was a detail I found particularly interesting. We recorded this episode at Hugh's home, just outside of Salon. The level of detail that he was able to share with me in his memories was extraordinary. You get a real sense of the community of Ulva and how life operated at the time, and how people have been interested in those who came before us for a very long time. There's a lot crammed into this episode. The whole What We Do in the Winter project has been sponsored in kind by The Island Bakery, and everyone who takes part in it gets a complimentary packet of lemon melts, which are always gratefully received. The website, whatwedointhewinter.com, has some photos from Hugh and links to the topics covered in our chat. I'll be back with more at the end of the podcast with some more information on the photos and other bits and bobs. And now, it is with great pleasure that I hand you over to Hugh McPhail. Who are you? Hugh McPhail. And where are you from, Hugh? Well, I came to Mull, as uh, one man in Salon said to me, I wasn't a local, but I've been here for a wee while, 60 years. <laughs> Goodness me. Now, uh, I came to Ulva in 1956. Okay. Uh, when I was eight. My yeah. father came there when uh, to manage the development of Ulva House and the piers and the whole of the development when Lady Congleton spent a considerable amount of money on building the place back up. Because prior to our buying it in the late 40s, the clerks ha- had really run it down. Yes. There was no livestock. There was nothing really done for a long time. So when she came in to begin with, she didn't do a great deal. And then in 1954, all the houses burnt. Yes. And then there was the insurance and everything sorted out. And it was in the March of 56 they started building the present all the house to the original design, Robert Adams' design. Right. right. And it was built not on the same site, just uh, about 10 or 15 yards further west, well, maybe 20 yards further west from where it was was originally. So I came there at eight and it was quite an interesting time. Yeah. And uh, in the 56, 57, all the houses built. Yes. And then in 57, 58, the piers were built. They 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 were stone piers and they were cased in concrete. Yes. And it was the uh, halls of Aberdeen that built all the house. Yes. And uh, the piers were uh, built by the other Aberdeen company, Taws. Everything had to be brought in from outside because there's no sand or gravel or anything in Ulva for building, none at all. I didn't know that, right? No, so it all had to come in and it came in in puffers, one every fortnight. Fantastic. So as a boy, it was quite interesting watching in the summer time the puffers. We would phone yeah. from Crean in the morning and say we'll be in at 20 past four or 20 past three or whatever in the afternoon. Yeah. We'd come by the sound of Iona in good weather. And it was quite interesting. We would beach alongside the, the pier. Do you remember any of the names of the, the puffers at all? The Glen, the Glen, Glen Cloy was one of them. Mm-hmm. She was 120 tonner, if I remember right. Right. It was the Spartan and she was just over 100 tonne. 
There was another one I was thinking about there, and I can't remember the name of it. It was actually a steam puffer. Oh, right. Oh. And, you know, the derrick and everything worked off steam. Oh, wow. And uh, the mate sat at the derrick and the steam blasting around him all day, you know. Yeah. And inside, the, the, I remember in the engine room, I was kids, and everything was all polished, the brass, and everything was all polished. But the engineer, he was, wasn't just so polished, he was surely very black with the coal. <laughs> McPhail himself. <laughs> that's well, right. he did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But that, that's that's where I that's how I came to Mull originally. I, but my people belonged to a, the open area. Right. Like my father, my father was. I'm one of the McPhails that were the carters that built Oban. Right. They were, they were carters when they built Oban and, and stonemasons. Uh, yeah. That's where the McPhail side of my mother's people were from Persia. Right. And uh, about 1880, I think, they first came to Bergulan at uh-huh. Tenault from uh, West Persia. And then uh, they were in Borno. My mother was brought up in Borno, just outside Oman. That's that's where my that's my my parents came from. And what do you remember of of Oban that area as a child? Well, I was in school in Oban. Of course, I was in school in Oban. Yeah. Yes, uh huh. Yeah. And uh, I remember being in school in Oban at the time uh, when the Kruhan gap, the Kruhan scheme was built. I remember in school those words were going to fill in between the two piers in Oban with a spoil from Kruhan. But some of the locals thought it would spoil the locals from Oban. <laughs> never heard that before at did all. You know? oh, <laughs> yeah. my goodness. That's right, right. Very interesting. What, where did the spoil from Kruchen go in the end? A lot of it, I think, maybe we went to Lahore. Right. There was okay. quite a bit of it in too along, uh, you know, the Stormarathon Road end, going oh. towards the Mali. Yeah. I remember there was a lot of stuff landscaped out there. Right. And that's where the main camp was for building. I remember that. It was all, the huts were all there where all the, the men stayed that built and that was a lot of international folk as well. There was oh, Polish and Irish. A lot of Irish, a lot, a lot of Irish, yes. Of course, there was the famous Donegal tunnelers. They were there. And the tunnel tigers, right? They were mostly from Donegal. Right. Yeah. But that's that's my history of how I landed in Mull. Yeah, so it was Ulva first rather than Mull? Well, in Ulva first, yes. My father was really kind of headhunted for that job. He had been managing a large estate in, in Inverness, and he had had an accident. And right. he, he damaged his back quite badly, and he was a year that he gave up his job over it, and uh, then he was headhunted by a noble solicitor who he knew very well. Yeah, Neil McKinnon of McKinnon's. He phoned up and asked him, was he ready for a job? He thought he had this job. It might suit him for two years. That's fantastic. And he came in 56 and he didn't retire till 72. <laughs> he stayed there looking after him. Yeah. Did he go in as uh, working on the farm and everything? He was in charge of the farm. He was he, he was in charge of the, like everything that was to do with building the house, although there was agents that looked after the building of the house, but the day-to-day running of it all, and, and the, and the general management of the farm in the state, that was his job. You said that the, the puffers landed uh, on the shore. Yeah, the beach on the shore, yes. Uh-huh. That must be quite something special to see. It was, it was, yes, it was. Well, you didn't think much of it at the time, because that's the way they operated, but they were flat in the bottom, so they were just like big baths, and they... Uh, they would come in before high water yes. and come onto the beach so they were sure of getting off on the next tide mm-hmm. and uh, they would just come in and ground them against the pier and uh, you would unload them and hope that you'd be, fit, you'd be empty for the the next night, you know, they would go up the next night and uh, they would come in again. And uh, it's quite interesting too at that time too that the, the coal used to all come and stuff for the puffers and you would get the puffers who would come to Alva, usually in July, and then they would put off 60 tonne in Ulva and then they would go to Terloisk and put off over at Terloisk. They would go in there 
Right, you go in there and they'll put off 40 ton the next tide. Sometimes they'll go to Greben, another time they'll call in Greben and they'll put off so much there, and then they would go into Inchkenneth on tide and put off so many ton there in Inchkenneth. And I remember, I remember one been up the loch at uh, Kilachronin. Uh-huh. I just remember that. But, yeah, I think it was only once I can remember a puffer going up there. <clears throat> but at that time, those puffers, I went into to Chiroran and uh, right round, you know, the, the beach all over. Uh, well, you see old photos of them, you know, unloading them in Iona and in different places. You'll see some of those photos. But to, to see them, it was really quite sad. As a, as a child, it was, you know, it was a big... You, you couldn't keep away from them. You know? right. <laughs> and they were quite happy for you to go into the engine room and wander oh, around. They would show you around, yes. You know, there wasn't health and safety then, you know. You were up the ladder and onto it. There was uh, guys would show you around the puffer, you know. It's quite interesting. Right? I remember there was one man, uh, McFadden, he was very famous, uh, Lismore McFadden, and uh, he was on the Glen Cloy. I remember one time he, he phoned up in the morning to my father to say, I'm in at a quarter past three, this was in July, and the mist was down, you could, it was just black. I was sent down with a note, bike to the ferry, to tell the ferryman, you know, that Buffalo's come in, he says, I'm not be in today, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, it stayed misty all day, so I went away down, some of my cousins were staying with us, I went away down to see if this Buffalo would appear at quarter past three, quarter past three, and the note round the yard point, honk, 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 Buffer appeared. And he came in and he, he waited off for a, about an hour just and then beached at the right time and he came in and I remember the ferryman uh, saying to this fellow, and you know, Mr. Oh, I were missed, it was misty all the way. He says, we never saw Iona. And of course, nothing but a compass on those things. And there was this chair sitting outside the wheelhouse on the deck and uh, this uh, young fellow you know, the way you are, as a child, you, you listen to everything that's going on. Yeah. This young fellow said, oh, I said, he was sitting out in the chair there. Skipper was sitting in the chair there all the way. By the time we left Crean, with a watch. And he was telling me how many degrees to go each way. And he was listening to the rocks, to the swell breaking the torrent rocks as he went through on each side, and he would say, so much this way, so much that way. That's amazing. That was he was quite famous. <laughs> I'm brain captains that were on these boats to, you know, they're only a compass. When you think of all the fuss they make now and they'll leave Oban in the dark yeah. and go to La Boyester and they'll come in La Boyester through the between Colin and Terry there in the pitch black. Yeah. And I know that during the war, it was one of my uncles, he was out in, in Canna eh, during the war, eh, part of his job. And, eh, you know, he said that there was no lights or anything at that time. And these guys had just went with the compass and the stars. And, yeah. Ah. yeah, the sextant. That's right, yeah, that's correct, right. that's right. Mm-hmm. They were quite amazing, eh? You, know, you hear the different stories about the different brain captains, you know, Polaris and yeah. Willie John McKinnon and all these, but they were really amazing seamen. So where were your folks during the war? Were they in Inverness? Were they over? No, my, I was actually born in... I'm an islander, although I came from the mainland. I was born in the Isle of Ciro. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> my father managed the Arden Cable estate for the Scottish executive during the war. It was taken over. Yeah at that time by the government when he was put into Parliament and I was born in Arden Cable. Did he ever talk about that as he were, the experience was like? Was it? Oh yes. I, oh, was yes. it a good experience or was it a difficult one with such well, a large it, it, management it, system? Well it was it was quite difficult because you hadn't got a lot of, 
a lot of equipment, you know, it was quite scarce. He, the first of the tractors that came here, he would tell about that, you know, the first master, Ferguson tractors that came oh, yeah. from under the lease land, they came from America, and he, the first he, lot that came to North Argyll, they couldn't get them to pull properly. Really? They were skidding, they couldn't understand, so they didn't know that much about tractors at that time, you know. So right. Himself and uh, this other uh, man that was with him there, he said he was from Fife, he had come in to work tractors. He said to my last and father, when are these wheels on the wrong way round? The tyres were on that, the wrong way around. You know the treads, the tires. Yeah. So how they realised they were reversing it up, somehow it was fine, going backwards, but forward it wouldn't climb. <laughs> but then, you know, they were new to, new to tractors, but they weren't long catching up. Oh, know. I know. But he, he ploughed up in Arden Capel at that time eh, and planted 10 or 15 acres of potatoes and all that from, from rough ground, you know. So we, and that, that was for the, the war effort, you know. Right. Aye. It was quite interesting, eh? But then but that he, he left when that was finished and that's when he went north and he was in charge of the branch of Eastern up there. Whereabouts outside of Inverness was he? He was the Hooley Estates he managed. Aye. And that time it was the second biggest land mass in Scotland, eh? You know, they went right over to Moiderton. My god. That's right, yeah. There's not a lot of it left now, a lot of it's been shattered and broken up. It's been it's been death duties caught up in all the different generations, you know. Eh? Yeah. Back to Ulva. I developed in Ulva. The first th one of the first things I did, they cut a thousand acres of Bratton. Really? With size. How many people did they have doing that? Well, there was, a, there was quite a number would have that. There's a place down in, in the Oramig there. Uh -huh. There's a long house as you go down. In, have you ever been down yeah, there? Yeah, I think you go down the Bray Oramig, there's a long house there. Okay. When I was young, they called that Butlins. <laughs> it's the ones that are the Brattons. They put wooden frame on it and a big tarpaulin over it. Um, and they stayed there, aye. Right. A firm of Allens. Belonged to, not where they came from exactly, but they, I remember they were in, on the go when I was young. They, they went to built fat sheep farms and all that sort of work. And they, they were cutting down there. And another one that cut a lot of brackens there was, uh, you know, uh, Anne Simpson. Mm -hmm. was, uh, her grandfather, mm -hmm. Johnny. Yes. He used to cut it with one of those, uh, what did they call them now? Collins machines they were. Mm -hmm. And the Villiers engine on them. And, there was a big bit out in the front and a rotor on them. Oh, right, OK. And uh, he used to cut them and he turned them a lot. You, you lock one wheel and it pulled the other one round. Two right. handles, that's how they worked. And he cut it a lot, Johnny, you know, yeah. over the different two years. But uh, so originally it was a thousand acres cut and then over the period uh, that we... Uh, my father managed it till, to, till 72 and then I managed it for five years before I came to Calgary here right. in 77. And uh, we always kept on top of the bracken. At the time, in my time, they were spraying it then with azulots by helicopter at that time. That's over 40 years ago. How did you have to do the same area every year? Or? No, well, well how, when they cut it, they cut it, uh, they would cut it, uh, a double cut, three years running. Okay. Then they would start in June, when they're, you know, when they're quite small. Yeah. And they would usually be finished about the 20th of July, the second cut. Okay. They just went round, and of course, they weren't that big, so yeah. they could, those guys were the size, they could, they could cut at amazing speed. And they they would be finished. I about usually finished to the Tomori Games. <laughs> That's an indication of the time, you know. And uh, that, that they would work at that. And it was very it was it was just as effective as a spring today if it was done for three years, you know. Right. Okay. Uh -huh. But at that time there was right there was there was capital grants for yeah. cutting it for improvement at that time. And how long would that last? It would last about the same as a spring, maybe eight to ten years, and you would have to it would start to come back. Okay. And just depending on the ground, 
Because a lot of the ground in Ireland is very fertile, you know, there's a whole croft and ground there. Yeah. I remember Bert Leach talking about the best lambs in the, the county came from came from there, in the, in the area, well, came I, from I, from Alva. He was always, spoke I, very highly of them. I, but the sheep flock built up and uh, there was, uh, there was about 1,400 breeding ewes in, in Alva. And uh, when I came, when I go, uh, came here, and there was, say, about 70-something cows, you know. The Alva Highland Forwards developed last till it was, you know, it was one of the top in the country. In the 70s, I was selling bulls at over £2,000 a feed. <laughs> Goodness me. That time, eh? That's extraordinary. Viking of Alva was, two, in 75, was £2,000. And we had others not far off that at that time. But they were, we developed them. We were quite, we were quite lucky in the beginning. The yeah. lines were quite good. My father built them up and then I ran them for, I ran the Highland Ford. I, I went home to Alva. He wasn't awfully good to health and went home to help him and I stayed there and I specialised in the cattle and that, at that time and bringing out the bulls to the sales. And it was very interesting, eh? And then after he retired, we, I, I carried, we carried on, but I had somebody else doing the cattle at that time with me. But they, were, they were very successful. Eh? And there was a Galloway herd on it as well. Hey, there was twenty. There was twenty Galloway cows. Hey, that was Lady Congleton's hey, son. They were a present of five heifers in about nineteen. Hey, must have been nineteen fifty-eight or something like that. Uh, a present of five heifers. So it was a Galloway head separate. They were just free ro- free roaming all over the place, or were there specific areas? Oh, you they were managed. Them? They were managed uh-huh. over the different parts of Ireland. Hey? Oh, yes. And would, they, would you rotate them from year to year, or would they just be kind of in the different Well, places? depending on this, it's like all farming, it's depending on the size of the lots, you know, you put them where some are best. And at that time, it was fenced from Starvation Point, you know where that yes, is? Yes, yeah. Up over past what was the old school, and then down to Ormig, and that was like an inner hill, so there was one lot inside that. Okay. And then heifers and that would be somewhere in the, outside that, in the crack again, down mm-hmm. different parts of it, it was quite interesting. That was what the stock was carrying at that time, but it was in good order. It's a huge number compared to what's been there latterly, I and mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah, and that's it's different today. <laughs> yes, indeed. yeah. But there's hope. There's things are changing, which is a, a very positive thing. You mentioned the the house, uh, the big house that burned down. Was there anything in the memory of people that you talked to about the character of the big house, the old big house? Yeah, well, as far as I understood, the new one is built pretty much to the same design. Mm-hmm. It was to the same design. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you ever been in it. The new, the, yeah, 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 the present one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I haven't been in it for thirty-five years. Or so. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it was a beautiful house when it was finished. You know, all mahogany floors up right through the whole lot of it. When Lady Congleton owned it, everything was kept to a very high standard. Yeah. If a gate broke today, it was to be sorted tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> Next week was no use. <laughs> that's amazing. that's that's the way it was meant. But she she had the wherewithal, you know, to, to at that time to manage it and, and to keep it. That. What was she like, Lady Cobbleton? Very straightforward woman. Yeah. She called a spade a spade and she was extremely straight to deal with. Yeah. And uh, in the managing of Alva, when I was there and my father before it, you were paid to manage outside the garden and she looked after inside. Okay. And the only time you went inside the garden was when she was away and only to manage that, the garden and the big house. Yeah. And that's the way it worked. And if somebody went to complain to her about the management, they wouldn't go back a second time. <laughs> she just told them my employer manager, he employs you, he employs you, so he'll, he'll deal with you. And that's the way she walked. She was very, very, very straightforward. Yeah. That, Some um, people didn't go on with her because she was quite straightforward, but she was an excellent person to work for, you know. 
and she was very good at listening, you know, if you wanted for change and uh, improvements and that. She was very good at listening and uh, seeing your point of view. Yeah. It was excellent to One of the things I'd heard was that she was very kind as well. Very, very kind. When I came, um, you know, I was managing for her there, and first of all, when time came to late, uh, it was a year before the Forza here, yeah, I went, to, I went to her and I said to her, no, I'm going to print an offer for this place. Whether I'll get it or not, I don't know, but I want to tell you in advance. Well, that's quite all right. Yeah, and uh, I didn't get it, so that was that. Mm-hmm. And the next year, when Forza here came up to let, uh, I didn't bring up the subject first. She said to me one day, I was in, in the study scene, and she says to me, are you going to try for Forza? Oh, I said, it's, it's, it's too big. She said, she sat up in her chair, she was always very smart. She says, you know, I'm not going to live forever. She said to me, you know. That's good. And uh, herself and uh, Jimmy Howard's father <clears throat> in government, which I did quite a lot of work for too, mm-hmm. they gave me excellent references, you know, for that. Fantastic. But, uh, that's the sort of person she was. She would never hold anybody back, you know. That's brilliant to hear. Right. That's right. And uh, she gave me excellent references. You know, from my application. Yeah. Uh, There's Lady Congleton in in the big house. What of the family was left of her there at that time? Well, the family were all away, all away, of course. And uh, uh, Jimmy Howard's mother, she was in Gomera, of course. Mm-hmm. She was a woman that people underestimated a great deal, you know. Yeah. She was a very she was a very smart woman. Okay. She was a Canadian Olympic skier. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Uh huh. That's right. And she had a pilot's license when she was really quite young, eh? Fantastic. You would never think that, you know, in her later years, eh? She was a very strong presence, even to her latter days. Yes, well, and we, I didn't have very much to do with them uh, until the farm manager hadn't gone out. There was an accident. He was drowned in Manfinnes, and, okay. and uh, they were left in the winter short, and we went down and attended to things. And then uh, they came in, they brought in a handyman. He went after the stock, which was Andy, you know Andy Dury? Yes, yeah. Andy Dury's father and mother came. Oh, right. And he was a blacksmith by profession, Fred. Uh, and they came there. They used to come in to Mullen Holiday, yeah. and they came there... And Fred looked after the, the cows in, in the winter time, yeah. and he made all the, the hay and that for them down there. But uh, we went down and did all the handlings of the sheep and the handlings of the cattle and that uh, when they required it, everything done on contract. That was until I, until, until I came here and did that. So it was quite a, it was for uh, seven, uh, seven years we did it. That day, the word we, mm-hmm. we used to quite enjoy it. And then I used to go down. Used to always go down with the vet when we went to test their cattle and all that. That was like Robert Wilson, Jimmy Wilson, the retired father. Right? Oh right, I didn't realise his dad had Oh yes, he was a vet. He came to Mullen about nineteen fifty nine as a vet. Ah. Jimmy was brought up here, you know. Yeah. But we used to go down into the cattle in, in the autumn and do everything that was to be done and testing. And Colonel Howard used to always have. He had a boat. And he used to always have lobsters and uh, lobsters and prawns for 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 uh, Jimmy's father to go back. And when we finished the cattle, we used to always went for the refreshments to the big house. <laughs> Some just took some time to get home. That's great. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great. Mind oh. you, at that time, Oliver, um, the time I came, came here, you know, you could go from Oliver, from the pier at Oliver to Oliver House in about an hour and 20 minutes, eh, about no, 40 minutes later, about. To go into house? Aye, the road was in good order then. Fantastic. It was done up in 1958, and then it got another done up again in 80, in 68, 69. Okay. And steep breeze were tarred in that, in that time. But it was Lady Congo that did all that. Right. 
<laughs> she did that. Well, at that time, Johnny Simpson, Ann Simpson's grandfather, he was the postman. He went down three days a week on the bicycle. Right. You could arrive at nine o'clock and you're back at twelve. Perfect. The bicycle, man. Fantastic. Right. He was. Uh, although the Howards used to leave him in old Landover quite often. Right. He would take down their supplies and things in Landover and kept it over ferry for that. So when you got to Olva, how many were in the community at that point? Well, at that time in Olva, well, there was a handyman there and his family. And he had five a family. The two of them were growing up and they were working on the estate at that time for a wee while, in their teens. And then there was uh, two shepherds. I, and there was a tractor one at that time. But there was quite a lot of activity going on at that time. We were building another house and of course. hauling stuff, you know, hauling stuff up to another house and that. And then there was the ferryman. Yeah, who was the ferryman at that point? Ian MacDonald. You know, he's, he's dead a number of years ago. His, his widow died in Tromori there last, was it last year or two years ago. Right. There's none of his family here. His son, Colin, he's in, in uh, Australia. I was going to say Brunei. He wasn't in Brunei for a week while, but no, he's in Australia again. Right. There's a listener in Brunei. I don't know who it is, but uh-huh. I know I can see that's for me. <laughs> he worked in shipping and, and, and he, he, he was in Brunei, but he's got, I think it's Australia he stays now. Right, okay. And his sister stays in Ayrshire. They were brought up in all right. I remember Colin MacDonald when he was, he said he was, was it four days or five days younger or older than Jimmy Hillard? Right. Born at the same time. And uh, when he was, uh, just before he went to school, I remember one time fishing him out the water at the pier. He tried to jump from the corner of the pier and he fell in high water. <laughs> I had to get the boat hook and <laughs> take him out. <laughs> That's right. These accidents would happen at times. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There was another fellow, a ferryman that was there at one time, eh, Alistair Boyd, his youngest boy, we were waiting on a lorry coming one day in here. I heard shouts and he had, was fishing on the end of the pier and he fell off. I managed to catch him and he was in quite a bad way. Right. And he had to go to open to be pumped out. Oh dear. He arrived back the next morning, I went down for something and here he was sitting fishing on the end of the pier again and I says, God, he's down there fishing again in the pier and his grandmother's there and she said, you don't need to worry, lightning never strikes in the same place twice. <laughs> I wasn't sure about that. <laughs> Stuart, I think it was his name that way for a while. So where did you stay when you got We to... stayed in the manse. Yeah, uh-huh. Oh, really? Up there, I Mrs Howard stayed like the way, Yeah, so did you have both sides of the manse? Or just... Well, we had the whole lot, yeah. Because it's a big, big house. Ah, it's quite a big house. Ah, well, it's... Ah, there's two bedrooms at the, what would you call, the south end. Yeah. And there's... Another room in the middle, yeah. And then there's this there sitting room in the kitchen. There's another small room off the, yeah. And then there was a lean to at that time that was the uh, that was the office, it's the office, and a bathroom at the back. It was going to spread out. It, it wasn't the warmest of houses, you know. Okay. You can see it that. was built in the eighteen twenty-seven, uh-huh. and that's when the man that's when the church was built. Yeah. Was it by the same architect? Yeah, yes. There was, there was two different types of manches at that time that, under that government de- development. The one in Ulva and one in Sutherland, they were identical. Right. The one in Iona was similar, but it was a bit different on the roof in it. Oh, right, OK. Mm-hmm, it was similar. It was quite interesting on the initial. There was a place for, for the, the peat of the coal, and there was a place for the hens at the end. The- uh, one wee bit off the kitchen for the hens. Uh, That's lovely. That was for the hens. <laughs> and that wall was still there, you know, that was where you kept coals and all that. That's right. And uh, there was, there was a trap there on it for putting coals in. And uh, that was that was for the hens. And then there was two ladders next to it. Yes. Uh, it was quite interesting. It wasn't Telfer, was it? It was, it was Thomas that, Telfer. That's right, yeah, yeah it was Telfer, that's right. 
you get them. This one, the, the church is the same as the one in Kinderspell. Of yes, that's yeah. the same design. They're all over. Yeah. The one in Ulva, no, it, it's bought over by Lady Congleton, right? 1956 or 57. From the Church of Scotland, yes, because it was derelict then, ah. and it was cutted out, and the church, the pulpit was shifted, right? And there was one small part made into the church and the rest was into a hall yes with opening doors I don't know if it's like that yet yeah, yeah, not. it still has opening yeah. doors yeah, big, uh, that was done by Halls of Aberdeen did that after they built all the house the, the resonator box above mm-hmm. the pulpit's fantastic that's it's right a, yeah. mm-hmm. but so, it sat in the middle in the very middle of the church before right I, I remember as a kid I didn't know shifting it and shifting it you know Paul's men shifting it and uh, you know when you're in the school, you're always knocking about the there, and, and uh, it sat between the two. It was a door. There was a door at each co- at each end, yes. facing the sea, and then there was two windows, and the <clears throat> and the pulpit sat in the middle. That's right. There's a very then, high, very high. There's the preaching box, and then the presenter box down below. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, it doesn't just fit too well in a small chest, but now because it's so short, so small, it does dominate it. But it's it quite impressive. It. Uh, actually, uh, it has a presence. Oh, I. Mm-hmm. Do you remember much of a congregation going to the church at the time as well? Well, it used to only be serviced me twice a year. Okay. Because uh, the Church of Scotland minister, uh, I don't know who the last minister was that will be there now. So Anne McKen- you know Anne Mackenzie. Yes. Now her father, her grandfather, were there as ministers. I didn't know that. Aye, aye, aye. They were ministers there. She was involved in writing a book. Was it with Voices the father, of the father. Who was in Ardallam when you were growing up? Well, Ardallam, Lady Congleton, we, when one of the houses been built, she stayed there herself. Right. A couple there looked after her, a housekeeper's there, you know. Wow. And then when she moved to all the house, it was converted into two two houses, two flats. Yeah. One up and one down. Yes. And the stand, when Jamie, after Jamie got married, they converted it back, I think, right, okay. to one house. But they were nice, they were, the one upstairs was a lovely flat, you know. And that was for, for workers. But yes. <clears throat> the one down below was for... It was for a worker, and the one up above was uh, one of her daughters of that, Lady Congo's daughter. She stayed down in Devon, and she had that. Uh, she used to come for us in the summertime there quite a bit. She had uh, three children, and she used to come there, and then the other daughter, uh, it was in London, she used to come and stay there too. It was, to, it was just kept for her own family, come, could come and run, run riot there. <laughs> Not yeah. in the house. <laughs> so at the square, that, so you got the ferryman in the, in the boathouse... And then, who was in the house beside the boathouse? Because you got the boat. That house wasn't occupied. Right. No, there was a. <clears throat> the, there's that. There's the house that's got the the, the um, thatched roof. Mm-hmm. Well, Sheila's that, cottage. That's Sheila's cottage. Well, Sheila wasn't there. Sheila had died before, or she had moved to Greenburn or something before. Right. Okay. Uh, when after before we, I don't think she really just approved Lady Congleton too much. Some said, but I, I can't be sure of that. Right. But that was sort of there like that at that time. Okay. And uh, the, there was a boathouse in the there was a wooden boathouse in, in the bay, the wee bay beside it. There, it's still there. It's still well. there. Aye, yeah. that's right. That's right. Used to put the boats in there for the winter time. You know. uh, when it was a very big tide. You had to make sure the door was shut, or they might, they might escape. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's quite interesting. That garden too was very fertile, very black soil in it. Now, the older folk used to say it was some of it was Irish soil that was in it. It was carried for ballast, you know. And the puffers. No, well before the puffers, you know, long before then. There used to be quite a lot of trade with Ireland, you know, for potatoes and 
Right. Aye, and whiskey and whatnot, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's Irish soil in the garden. Well, that's what they're writing to. And they used to say, I know my father used to say in Cyril, you'll get the same in Cyril yeah. in the gardens beside the, port, the, the ports and the very black soil there. And it was carried as ballast, you know, in these sailing boats. Aye. Yeah. Gosh. 200 years ago. Mm. Well, that's a thought. Mm. Aye, um, so who was up in the farm square when you... Well, at the farm square up there, <clears throat> they usually uh, the shepherds usually stayed up there okay. and the tractormen, they stayed uh-huh. up there. Right. in the farm square. Yeah, there was the two houses there and then there was what's called the bothy. Uh-huh. There was a bedroom and a sitting room. Uh-huh. Yeah, in the end next to the farm. Yeah, what you would say, the east end, there was a, there was a stair up there. There was a, bed, there was a bedroom upstairs and a sitting room downstairs mm-hmm. and a wee kitchen bit. And sometimes it would be a single bag would stay there, you know. And there's that lovely steading uh, as you're heading up towards the... the oh, aye, what they call the new steading, aye. Yeah, what was... Because it looks like there's an old house there as well. What was that well, like? It, it was, no, it was all a steading, that. Right. As far as I know, it was all a steading and uh, there was a cart house in the end of it. Right. And then, like, there was cattle, cattle, pen, cattle houses inside and there was a loft up above. We used to store a lot of stuff in the loft there in the wintertime, you know, to get away from rats and things, feeding and that, aye. And uh, the concrete yards... I remember they, they were concreted. I remember them being concreted. All the yards there and the walls inside. These walls, there's lovely walls on that. Eh? Was it cobbled before that or was it? It was cobbled, eh? yes, it was cobbled. I remember right, yes. Gosh. It was all cobbled. Eh? But the walls inside, some of them were fo- fallen down quite badly. <clears throat> and eh, there was a mason from Melbourne that used to do a lot of mason building of the walls there, eh, John McCallum. And eh, when I was a teenager, I used to labouring with him a bit home and he was quite fascinating with stones. What did you learn from him? Oh, so I learned about it. You know, you learned about how to shift huge weights with a plank. <laughs> huge stones, you would lift them with a plank. You'd put two or three stones and then you put the thing down, you'd lever it up and swing it and put it on. And and then he had a great lot of stories because he had served his time with a lot of the masons that built Bumboridal Castle and the, the, the castle in Rum, you know. And he had served yeah. his time with some of these old guys and he used to tell him you start telling me stories about them all, you know. Do any of those come to mind at all? Do you remember any of them? Oh well I used to tell about them that they were working in Oban, you know, they would get they would get uh, any enough what he call a grub state together. Uh-huh. And then maybe they would get a they would get a, a fishing boat and maybe be six or eight or ten they would get a fishing boat and they would take them to, to rum, you know, to work. And then he would tell you about the stones, you know, mm-hmm. not mixing the stones because it, it, you know, it would leak if you mix the sandstone and the wind together building the house. The wind contracted in the summer, in the winter time, and it opened up gaps. It was quite funny. You talk away when you said it. Mm. It's lovely. He used to smoke, chain, nearly chain smoke woodbine. Mm-hmm. So we used to stop for a rest. <laughs> but these yards, I was going to say to you about the yards and uh, the new stadium. Mm-hmm. The walls have, had fallen down badly and. He, father said, I think we'll just move, take the walls out and put in a partition. And Donald said, you know, it would only take a fortnight longer to build the wall up, the new wall up, that would take the stones away. At that time there was no JCBs or things to lift them. And you think so, Donald, yes. If I get day, two or three guys with me for two or three days, we'll throw the stones out and then we'll build the wall. And uh, that's one of the centre walls in there. And it was just immaculate when it was finished, you know. You get the, the old, uh, you get the hatches on the shore, you know, if the boats had been sunk during the war, some of these long hatches, right. and you'd get those hatches, and uh, there was always about, you know, these places always quite a few of them about shifting things, and 
you get really a big, a huge stone, yeah. and you would shift it with a crowbar a bit, <laughs> and then you get down to the, turn it the right way on the end of the hatch, and you'd build up stones, maybe up about 18 inches high or whatever, and then you'd put the hatch in, and then you would lever it up, and then you would turn it round, and you'd be holding it, you'd a wee bit more and a wee bit more, and then just go like that, and it would land the wall. Nine times out of ten, you wouldn't have to shift it, you know. My goodness. Oh, I don't imagine they were up. You know, when you see these walls and yeah. buildings with these big stones, you wonder how they ever built them. But oh, totally. They were fascinating to work, watch, you know. Their preparation was always just correct before they started. Right? That must have been something that they learnt and that's been taught, 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 taught from generations. Yes, that's right, from generations, that's right, yes. Right. Gosh. Yeah. So you were eight when you came to Alva Yes, first. uh-huh. And then uh, you were there until t- you were in oh, your teens. I went, I went to open when I was 11, school. So what, what, did you go to Alva Ferry School? I went to Alva Ferry School, yes. The teacher at that time, <clears throat> Jessie McGuinness, at that time she stayed, they stayed in Kinnegara. Okay. Her husband was the tenant in Kinnegara. And she came every day. And she was the teacher. She was just coming to retire. And she'd been re- teaching there for a long time. <clears throat> and she was just coming to retiring then. Was it the two rooms in the school or was it the one? One room. Just the one room. One room, right. That's right, right. The fire and the... And the Middle of the wall. Her desk was beside the fire. <laughs> she was quite an amazing woman how she'd managed to do everything. She had some of her nieces staying with her because her mother wasn't well and she had a nephew from Camelton staying with her because his father died suddenly and she had uh, Ollie McGuinness's auntie who was very ancient. She was looking after her. She was very busy and yeah. she was very fond of her kids at this. <laughs> cigarettes she used to say I'll need to go and put coal on the fire <laughs> she went next she went next door to have a, have a smoke she was very nice so it was, was quite an interesting it was quite interesting and then at the time that the uh, the house was built of course uh, I don't know it's still there the, the wooden huts you know where they stayed still there I think, mm-hmm. isn't it I think so Ted Jones used to have his workshop there oh, fantastic those ah, well, he's, that was the hut, that's the camp as I call it yeah. well there was uh, there was a family there of Stuarts their mother was a sister of Kaliman mm-hmm. you know? yeah. and um, he was the cook for the camp right. so the whole family were there and they, they were in school three, I think there was three of them in school there for about it must have been about a year no affair at that time there were also ones that came from Mulligown and they, they, they were boarded out, children, those, an uncle of Bowman's at the buses that was there, him and his wife, and they, they had those three boarded out ones and, and they, they used to come there to school too, high. All right, this was quite a lot. At that time, the, the catchment area was from Mulligown and then the Troy School was open at that time. Yes. I Cameron Fletcher and... Yes, yeah, yeah. The, the Simpsons and all that. They were yeah, there. there, yeah. That's right. It was quite interesting, and in at that time used to the parties, you know. Oh, in the hall? It's... In the school at La Ferry. Ah, Christmas right. time and Halloween, we'd have parties there, and the Tulloskins, they all came up to the parties in La Ferry, you know. And that sometimes it would be on the tractor and trailer they came. Yeah. And uh, then we, we'd go back down then to Tulloskins, to the hall in Tulloskins. Yes. In the whole village hall there, you know. Yeah. It was a wooden building, right? That hall sounds like it was wonderful. Oh, it was wonderful, aye. Right. It was uh, when everybody was dancing at the wall. It was Tilly Lanks, of course. There was no, mm. there was no hide put at that time. When they'd be dancing, I stepped over like Tilly Lanks. We'd fallen off the hoops and the roof, you know. <laughs> Health and safety was. I look today, I don't think, but it was excellent. Right? The pond for the for the middle, you know, it was just yes. at the back of the hall there. Yeah, yeah. Where Ian Mackay is the shed now. Yes. And uh, of course, uh, the men would be going out 
there was no bars on the horse then. I mean, we were going out for the half bottles and sometimes I flooded, you know. All of a sudden, they'd be having a drama at the back of the hall and somebody would take back and <laughs> splash. <laughs> uh, it was quite comical. But it was quite a social event, these, you know. And were there, were there kind of events like that on Olva itself as well, in the hall? They used to have a, a, they used to have a, a, a party at Christmas time there in all Troyce was always invited at that time, right? Just weather permitting, that was a problem with that. Who were your peers growing up? Who were the same age as yourself growing up and up? Colin Fletch is the same age as me. Aye, further up the road, yes. Yeah, aye, 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 further up the road aye. in that time. But the ones at that time with me were, well, there was, say, uh, Russell's. He was the handyman, the handyman in Ulva. Uh-huh. His daughter, Chrissy, she was a year older than me and the other was a year younger than me. Right. Aye, she, she went on to be a nurse in the army. Huh? Oh, of course. Aye, she, she arrived here when we were doing bed and breakfast about ten years ago and uh, we were almost to be shearing or somewhere and... Elizabeth says, so, the two women through there, one of them says, she knows you, she didn't see who she was, uh, and I went through, here it was Chrissy, aye. and she had been in Germany quite a bit as a nurse, my husband was a helicopter pilot, aye, Chrissy, aye. and our brother, uh, Jimmy, uh, he was left school just about the time we went there, and he worked in the farm in, in Alva, he stays down in Benesson now, Jimmy Russell, right. he said, well, you must be... Keeping up your eighty, I think. Okay. And um, his brother uh, Huey, he was in Tobermory for a long time, and then he moved to Fort William. Okay. But they were older; they worked in the, they were older. These were the main ones. And then, of course, there was uh, the ones that were younger than me in school. Going from Mulwell was uh, Ishcombe MacDonald, was at the ferry, and oh, yeah. um, Lillian McKinnon, was Shepherd's daughter. Yeah. Uh, she's over in St. Ian now. That's uh, and Moira, uh, Moira, uh, Willie Macrones. Oh. Wife, Moira. Yes. Aye. Moira was in school there too. I didn't aye, know that. When right. he came there. Oh, he came there in 1959, I think it was. Aye. Are okay? Aye. Moira and uh, uh, Archie. He was Archie Lewis, and that's uh, Moira's stepfather. He was uh, a shepherd of Melbourne right. at the time. He was a very strong man. Aye. Not very big. He was. Uh, he could clip sheep in the stool like grease lightning, aye. And the population of Gometra at that point, was that quite small as Gometra, well? At that time, there was, uh, the McFarlands were in Bullachloich. Uh, that's Andy, Andy and Glenaris' uncles. Oh, right, OK, yes. Uh, they were in, in Bullachloich, and uh, then uh, one of them milked, had a milk cow or two in Gometra, and they were kind of semi-retired at that time, these yeah. men. And one looked after the garden. He had always been looked after the garden in Gometra. Nice. That was uh, the one they called Red Angus. OK. And... Norman, uh, he had been on the mainland most of his time, but he came home and retired there. He had a he had a family in the mainland growing up. But he came back there. I remember him there, and he was great for fishing. He used to fish in the autumn, and he used to salt all the fish. I remember, he used to there was a tin roof, and he used to have the wires along, and he, he rubbed them with the salt, and he salted them all. And Andy's father stayed in Salmon here, and he used to send him a barrel of uh, salt fish. And uh, two big, like the big egg boxes of the dried fish for the winter. Uh, Fantastic. He was a he was a great man. Normally, he wouldn't wait for any walk miles. You know, really? he could he would leave Balakoik and come to visit the one in Sala, and he wouldn't bother about us. He would just walk. He just glided along. He's a tall man. Eh? Mm-hmm. They were in Balakoik, and then down in, in Gometra, uh, it was different. Come people came, you know, came and went when I was a boy. Fletcher from Miley was the manager there for a while. And then the, there was different ones. Then Dougie Campbell in Killacreast. Okay. Dougie came there. He was the, he was the head stocksman in Gometra. Oh, 
before he went to Kilachrys, Dougie and Morak, that's right. So what did you do for fun? How did you make your own amusement when you were younger and all oh, that? I think you make more amusement in these sort of places all the time, you know. So you're, what would you call your born free, you know? Ah, yeah. In the autumn, you're always picking nuts and mm. making swings and fishing and all sorts of things. I used to go with Ian MacDonald, you know, when I was in school. He used to fish lobsters, you know, after work on the ferry at night. And he used to go down to the south side. He had a, a square stern skiff, you know, and seagull out, or big seagull out. And I used to go with him to fish in the, in the evenings, you know, mm-hmm. for the lobsters. And he fished about 30 creels, you know. Lovely. And if you didn't get 25 lobsters, it was a disaster at that time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 30 creels. <laughs> he was very particular about everything, you know. And he never went past Little Collins, you know. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was... Or a and then work his way back up. Yeah. And then once it came into August a bit, he would come into October. Mm-hmm. And you'd fish there until the weather got bad in the evenings. Until they lost the light, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so they had sort of rules, you know. Uh, Neil, old Neil McCall, that's like Angus McCall at Terloisk and yes. Alistair's father, he was the cattleman in Terloisk. And he used to fish lobsters. And he would come up as far as Balagown, you know. And me and McDonald would go down. But they wouldn't cross over, you know, the other territories. <laughs> That's right, I remember one time I was with Ian and the, the <clears throat> old Neil had moved up a bit further than he should have, so he put me ashore and there was an old jerry can, you know, one of your old square jerry cans, and he, he lifted the creel up and opened it and opened the lesson and put the jerry can inside. <laughs> old Neil was very wild. <laughs> yes. Practical tricks. Yes, indeed, <laughs> Mm-hmm. He was a great man, old Neil. Man. Children that are brought up in that they can always find all sorts of amusement, you know. Did you use the geography much? Did you go up past or making a way out off to the north end up to Gomatrop? Well, not very, no, not very much. But we, you, you know, you were always about the woods and the places there. Right. And that there was always things going about, you know. You know, there's always things happening you know, all the time. That's right. And how did it change over your time there? You would have seen it over the course of nearly twenty years. Well, you would see, I didn't see a lot of change at that time, but there was quite a lot of change in people coming and going, you know. You'll get people coming, you know, and everything's lovely until they get a winter of it and they can't go to... Yes. And then they get tired and they're off. And uh, you would get that. But uh, there was all sorts of different, quite interesting people coming into work there. eh? I remember I took on and one guy, he, he came looking for a job and he was actually a tailor. And it was a... Goodness. It was a... Trackman's job, you know, had to haul oil oil up from the, from the ferry to all the house and to the, all the different places and coal out and that. Came looking for a job and he had been in Lewis, in the Tween Mills there, and they had closed down. And he had been working all summer on the crofts there. And he had friends here in Mull. And he was actually off the Baha'i faith. And he had all right, okay. <clears throat> and he, he came here and he applied for this job. He came over to see me and when I said to him, well, You've not a lot of experience. Well, I've been working all summer. You can contact the people in Lewis, you know, and I can drive a tractor and I can. It's a very adapt, very adaptable guy. Yeah. And he came and he was with me. He was at three and a half years. Right. Then he went off to the Falklands. Goodness. And me. he just got out the Falklands before the Argies arrived. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, he was a very interesting guy, but he was of the Baha'i faith. And <clears throat> yeah. Him and his wife were very, very nice. Yeah. And his children went to a ferry school. Yeah. And because there was quite a community of Baha'i in, uh, on the well, At that time there was, that's right. Aye. 
There was another couple in the school. She was a teacher to Murray. She stayed in Mulder Ferry School yeah. after that. And then there was John Boylan to Murray. Do you know what it was that drew them here? As a I community? Don't know. I can't it? really tell you that. It might have been maybe they were maybe accepted to a certain degree, but they kept very much to themselves. Oh, yeah. And I used to get, you know, have two students in the summertime, you know, to come to help for the silage making and yeah. maintenance work and all that. Yeah. Two or three years running it, it was friends of his that came, you know. Right. And uh, these were very nice guys and... One of them, in fact, uh, he was a cobbler by profession. Eh? He went to study uh, sound. Yes. Yeah. And the last time I heard of him was he was in with Kirsty Worth, like an old visiting birth one time. I mean, and uh, he was he was the sound engineer. Fantastic. And he had been over clipping with me at Berth's. Well, he used to neighbour with Berth after he came here yeah. five years. And uh, we used to go over to Shear for him and whatnot. And Lovely. these boys would go over as well with me. And, Bert said to him, oh, I just go down to the house, you know where, he just go down there, he says, it's quite all right, Bert, I know where I'm going all right, I'll be there before. And Bert says, how do you know that? I remember when I used to crog the sheep for you. <laughs> and he had been down, you know, with me, crog the sheep, yeah. Alan, I, and he was, he, was, he was one of the, he was an independent sound engineer, you know, at that That's time. That's great. Yeah, a nice guy, yeah. And he was back, he was two or three, when he was studying, you know, for that, he used to come for the summer and, Bert was a great man. I uh, I got to know Bert when I was working as a local development officer oh. with um, Callie um, for Micta over at Alva Ferry. Very, very kind, didn't himself and Chris. Oh, but when he came there, he was on his own, you know, and he, he, you had to hand it to him. He came there and he was, he, he only had what you were standing up in, you know, yeah. when he took the tenancy there and he built it all up, yeah. himself and Chris. And, that, and he was, he was quite an interesting guy. Yeah. That's right. I really enjoyed his company. He used to come to gather with me and all the sheep, you know, and the clipping things and that, and he had a terrier dog. I think first one was none time. Anyway, he used to leave Wagon Oliver with the landowner, and I would hear him leaving. And he used to, the dog used to follow him all the way to the ferry, back, and you'd hear it barking all the way. And as soon as he got in the boat, the dog went away home again. Aye, that's right. I think it was first great enough his name that. We talked very briefly about the stock on Ulva and the extraordinary kind of things you managed to do with the bulls. Um, is there anything else that stands out about farming in Ulva, do you think, that's well, quite as, different? As you, as you pointed out yourself, you know, the, the, quality, the quality of livestock you could produce on it because of the land, if it was managed properly, you know, the, the breeding ewes that were sold off it every year, the, the regular casts, as we talk about, <clears throat> were sold, you know, they were in the top five in Oban, you know, for price every year, you know. It was at that standard they were at that, that time, you know. But how was the land managed to make it that well? What, what well, the brattens were kept cut and the stocking levels were kept at an acceptable level, not too high, so that it wasn't overstocked. The level of general management was, health-wise, was kept right. But the, the stocking levels were never allowed to get too high. And that's one of the problems in these places is that if it gets stocking levels get too high and part of it and it's not it's not being maintained properly, it you know, you don't produce the same level of stock. Animal welfare's not so good either. You know? Right. Yeah. It's the same in all these hill places, the same here, you know, and more if you get overstock. Yeah. So an old shepherd said, it's only one animal can eat a blade of grass, two can't. Yes. <laughs> That's simple as that, you know. Very true. You were there when the the, the pier was being constructed. Were you aware of the other access over to Greben at all as a young man? Well, people used to talk about that, you know, as that was the original from Kiligeekja across to 
leaving. Because if you look at some of the old writers, there was a lot of traffic back and forward that way. And I saw an old book before, and it was an account book, 1920 or there about, maybe, no, it was earlier than that. And... Uh, I just had a look through it, but I noticed a lot of the new carts and things were built by the, somebody in Grieben and, you know, there was quite a lot of comings and going that way with them. Of course, it's sailing boats they're working with at that time. Yeah. At the farm square, you've got, so you've got Brackadill there and you've got the, the big shed, you've got the, the main steading itself. Yeah, that was a very high roof. Yes. With corrugated iron on it. And in the big storm in 67, it nearly took it nearly took off. Quite badly damaged. Didn't take off, but it wasn't far off it. Right. So we decided then it was replaced. So it was brought down to that level. Okay. You know the level it is now. Yeah. Right. We designed it then. You know we're going to iron stand the iron stand standards were on the outside because it was all concrete yard instead of breaking it up. The shed was designed to fit in like a Meccano. Okay. At that time. Right. But that was the original old Macquarie house. Was it? Oh, I, I think so. Yes. One of them. That. Because it was all limestone, you know, inside and all lime plastered in the old... There's still lime render on the yes, walls. Yes, that's right, yeah. aye, on the eight bits of it. That's right, inside. Aye. And, uh, well, we, re- we reckon that was the Macquarie house, you know. There's another place... It's quite here. a size, then. Oh, it's a big house, aye. It was a big lump of house, aye. Why do you think they chose to take the Macquarie house down? Well, when all the house was built by the Clarks. Yeah. yeah the Macquarie house quite often happened in <clears throat> these places... The old house was turned into farm buildings, you know, of one kind or another. You find that through the highlands, you know, where the old farm buildings, the modern was built and the old was renovated for another purpose. Just down from the standing there, as you're heading down the wee hill down yes, towards, uh-huh. there's a sort of half ton. A silage pit. It's, is it a silage pit, that big tall? That was a silage pit, aye. Turned into a piggery at one time. Right. But it was, a, it would be a silage pit. You know, you get those round ones, you get square ones. They were built a band, I don't think. I can't tell you when, maybe about 1880 or sometime like that they were built. Right. And you always find they're on a bank. Yes. There's one in Glencano, if you look. Okay. You know up at Glencano? Are you up at Glencano? You've never no, been up there? No, not at all. Oh, you haven't lived yet. Ah. <laughs> uh, up past Loch Bar. No, Glencano on right up past Loch Bar uh-huh. to Glencano. Okay. There's the old farmhouse there. I've never been And then there's the far. old sheep farm on the far side. Okay. Which was the graveyard ah. for the clearances. The Sheep farm was built on top of the graveyard. But on, there there's a, one of those square silage pits and it's built against a bank. You'll see another one over in Loudoulis. But there's a tie-up between Glencarnell and Loudoulis Fletcher, I think, at one time. Right, okay. I'm not just sure of the history of it now. You need to go to Ian Thorber for that, but there is there's similarities in, in the silage pits in both places. But that's the way it was, and, and it was... The, the generator house too. Yes. It's, I don't know if it's still there or not. Jenny House has got the transformers for the solar power in it now. Oh, was it? No, no, no. Aye, so. I see. And the, the, oh. the pit where the Jenny was in is still there. Uh, these generators were in 1957 or 58. That lot. There was another lot. There was accumulators for them. Right. Big, big battery shed you know, next to it. But they went in then and they, they ran until uh, I put the hydro in there under the rural development scheme. Aye, that's when the cables went in, and it was under the rural development programme at that time. I can even tell you what it cost per house. Oh, do? Well, £47 a house. Fantastic. <laughs> the that's job was <laughs> 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 won't manage that this time. <laughs> but that spar that runs up there, that is... The dam was built by Lady Congleton. Yes. Went up, that was for the water supply, and that's the first thing she did when she bought the place. She built the dam... Uh-huh. And put in a public, a, what we call a public water supply. It's a two-inch pipe that goes right round. It goes as far as Ardellum, and it goes right down to the ferry. And uh, 
there's actually two, there's two, there's two dams, there's a small one near the manse, comes out with springs and then there's the one in the, uh, the Balkhastoy one. That country one now. What did people do for water beforehand? Was it from springs? It must have been all springs, yes, mm. aye, springs. Of course, Ulva has a lot of springs, you know. When you walk through it, you know, there's springs everywhere in it, here and there. It's uh, quite amazing. When you were um, a kid there, were there people coming back saying, oh, my folks were at Starvation Point or anything like that? Well, you get people coming back from... There was a map in Ulva uh, in the office there, and it went, I can't tell far it went, went back. It was before the clearances, yeah. and every house was marked on it, everything was on it. And when I came here, I took it down to Lady Congress and I said to her, I don't think this should be left up because all the other writers were burnt in all the house. Yeah. There was excellent writers there <clears throat> and they were all burnt in all the house. Right. And this map happened to be up in the office and that, that's how it was there. So I said to her, this map, you know, it should be put in safekeeping somewhere. And she said to me, well, I'll send it to my lawyers in Edinburgh and get them to keep this map and up will get copies made of it. I asked Jamie about it one day, but he didn't seem to know about it. I didn't really look into it that. It was excellent. Now, but to get back to people coming back, yeah. you had people who come to the north side, you know, facing Terlois, they were usually from North America. Really? But I found the ones that came to Socratic on the south side were usually Australian. Goodness me. And I remember down in, in the cemetery at Crackig, I don't know if you've been down there or not, have you? Yes. In the yeah, cemetery. Yeah. There's a bit that's walled in. Okay. Well, that's all flat, flat stones that's in there. Right. Gravestones, big stones. I remember one lot came from a... I think it was New South Wales, and they went down there, but we didn't. It was after they were there, I realised they must have known everything about it. Yeah. And they'd scraped back all the earth and the stones, this quite large stone about twice the size of that mat. Really? On the ground, yeah, and it was all writing on it. But they knew that stone was there when they came. The Major General Macquarie, he was he was born down near there. Ormick, Don't No, it wasn't was in Ormick, it was in Cracky. Was it Cracky? Uh, Aye, there's a house down... Uh, you know where Alistair Moore is, the big nose? When you pass Cracky Cottage uh-huh. and you go on past there, there's a house there and it's got square corners. Okay. Right. Well, they said that was where he was born. Right. right. Others tell you it's all me, but right. other folks said that's, that was where he was born. Right? Well, see, these people, when they were cleared off there, they would be quite well-off people because they were very fertile with fishing and farming and that, you know. There's a place to it at the middle, you know where the Cracky yes. Hill is? Well, down below there in the shore... Yeah. There's what would be a shipwright's place there. Yeah. Did you see that? Right? No, I didn't no. see that. Didn't if you're ever there again, go down. In the winter time's the best time. Go down there and you'll see, you know, there's the two walls are there where they'll be stripping the boards, you know. And you'll see out on the shore there, there's not a pebble on the shore where they would put the boats out. And there's different bits about it there. If you if you look at it, you know, it's not an ordinary croft. It would be a, it would be a blacksmith's bit for building boats. Right. Yeah, my father was quite, he was very interested in those things and he always reckoned that was a, it was a shipwright's place because of the way the walls were built. You've seen them in different places in these islands. You know, there were one on the top, one on the bottom. Yeah. Right on the planks. Just go down, take time and go down and have a look at it there, you know. Yeah, Who was in the Bothy then out there? It was maintained, but there was nobody staying out there right. that time, no. But Sometimes if there was bracken cutters down there, they would stay there, you know. Because it's lovely. It's oh, a it's a lovely place. place. Oh, it's a lovely place. place. I remember one time, old Lachie McNeil, you know, that was at all of it. He stayed in the house, you know, where Johnny Howard built the house. Yes. Well, he stayed in the knoll there, okay. and, and he worked in the knoll in the garden, and, uh-huh. then, and he read in the ferry, different work, and he used to always go down in the springtime. He came back one time and he said, oh, a lot of the small scallops, I gathered 150 and I put them round the rock, with a rock at the sand. Yeah. I found out afterwards that that very night somebody overheard them went down and they were all gone, you know. 
And I wonder if I feel like that now, you know, people at that when I was a boy, people were, you know, they were very regimental, you only took the very best of others and you didn't yes. you didn't take the, the small ones, you know. Another place you would get very big ones was near Gomet Bridge. There's a wee sandy bit in there. There's an old fort there and there's a there's a walkway across to it. If it, it's facing over to to Burl. Was there any fish trap there at all or anything like that? Ah, there was fish traps in different places there. There was fish traps in the south there too. And then below the manse in Norva, there was fish traps there. Right. In there, you know, below the manse, yeah. on these walls. Yeah. They'd be catching an old trout and right enough. I remember getting quite a lot of mullet there one time, taking them home, and you know what they're like? All the spikes in them. <laughs> I remember my mother making them in fish pie. Yeah. Uh, we went down a bit net, and you could, then you couldn't get them out of the net because the hooks oh. in them. You'll find these traps everywhere. Uh, you know, on the Caris. ground over there. Aye. Yeah. Can be carries here and there, eh? just yeah. like the one at Derby there. Mm. Indeed, yeah. You know, they used to make, we used to make a lot of crop there. You know, it's all ploughed. Yeah. Hay and silage and whatnot. Used to be all hay, you know, hay rucks and everybody went building the hay rucks. As kids, you were tramping them round, you know, when they built them up. That's fantastic. That's right. These older guys that spoke Gaelic mostly, you know. And yeah. There was one guy I won't name him, but anyway, he, we used to be as kids, we'd ask him about people, you know, and then up the sound, especially on these the fields next to the ferry you were working there, and you'd see them, and there's somebody with, what kind of engines in that boat? And he used to always say, an overboard. <laughs> yeah. He never talked of outboards, they were overboards. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But as kids, you know the way you, you couldn't you couldn't resist not asking to hear him say it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's the battery gone. That's amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time, Hugh. I greatly appreciate it, and I'm really pleased we were able to catch up. I know many people will appreciate what you have to say. As you can tell from listening to this, there's so much more to talk about with Hugh. I hope to catch up with him at some point in the future to talk about his career and life after Alva, which will be of great interest to many people. If you look at the photos on the website, whatwedointhewinter.com, you'll see a rounded hedge around Alva House. It was done this way so as to avoid any corners when cutting the grass. Hugh said that the corncrakes used to nest under the hedge there. Lady Congleton's master bedroom looked out over the hedge onto Ben Moore. She was heard to say... It's nice to hear them the first time, but after six weeks, it gets a bit thin. Cracks, cracks. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm looking to fundraise through donations. So if you feel like it and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee or even the price of a small chocolate egg through the website. You'll see a donate tab there where you can donate if you so wished. I've also got a fledgling Patreon page for donations, which you can find under my name, Alistair Satchel. If you wanted to contribute to that, you're very welcome. But don't worry if you can't donate or you don't want to. I'd much rather you listened than you didn't. And on that note, thank you very much to Emma, Stuart, Hannah and the anonymous donor. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd also like to offer a great big thank you to Eleanor at Live Our Girls Library Service for helping in sourcing an amazing book. Thank you so much. The weather's just been wonderful this week. I'm in my shorts and snorkel as I speak to you. The lambs are out and bounding around, which is amazing. And I'm thinking of my farming friends. I hope you're all doing well. 
We're just awaiting the return of the swallows here at ours to signal that summer is truly coming. I've spent the week working on various projects, including starting to try and get my children's book published. So, if you're a literary agent or a publisher, and particularly interested in a fantastical tale set in Edinburgh, weaving back and forth through time from the present day to the reign of James IV, do feel free to drop me a line. If not, then I worry. Also, to help me grow the podcast, if you wanted to leave a rating or a review on whichever platform you use to listen, I'd be really grateful. Thank you to those of you that have. I really, really appreciate it. And also, thank you to those of you who reach out to say hello. It's always wonderful to hear from you. Thank you. As ever, the webpage, whatwedointhewinter.com, has all the links and info you'll need from this episode. And we can be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Kayu, thank you for listening, wherever you may be. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. More and tang. Shinakate. Cracks, cracks. And for a special birthday treat in honour of Mr. Colin Morrison, please find after this the full recording of the What We Do in the Winter theme song with drums and everything, which I wrote at the start of the project, featuring Mr. Colin Morrison of Penmore on the Penny Whistle. Here we go. Ah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs>